like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5. Chapter 4 ended with the people of Jerusalem working around the clock to rebuild the walls. And they were building with a battle plan. They had a trowel in one hand and they had a weapon in the other. And the lesson we learned from chapter 4 is that when they took their eyes off themselves and the rubbish and the enemy, and when they looked to the great and awesome God, they were able to both turn back the enemy and regain their mind to work. Now chapter 5 introduces us to a whole new set of problems. Chapter 4 was an external problem. Chapter 5 is an internal problem. Chapter 4 was an attack from without. Chapter 5 is an attack from within. Notice verse 1. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. There was a great commotion going on in Jerusalem. The people are crying out, both men and women. And if you'll notice, they are not crying out against the Samaritans or the Ammonites or the Arabs. They are crying out against their own people. They are crying out against their brothers. They are crying out against those who are part of the covenant community, those who call them, themselves part of the family of God. And what is the complaint? Well, Nehemiah records three complaints by three separate groups in the first five verses. The first group complains, we are hungry, in verse 2. For there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. This first group is in abject poverty. They have no food and they have no possessions with which to acquire food. You say, well, that's their problem. Why are they crying out to their brothers about this issue? Well, because God had set up the Jewish economy in such a way that the poor were to be provided for. In Deuteronomy 15:8, we read the general attitude toward the poor. Those who had been blessed by God were to have open hands, and they were freely to give to the need of those around them. In Leviticus 19, we're given specific actions that they were to take toward the poor. When they harvested their fields, they were not to reap the corners so that the poor could go in there and get food. When they gathered grain and they dropped any on the ground, they were not to pick it up so that the poor could come and get it. When they harvested their vineyards, they were to go through and pick the grapes one time. And they were not to go through a second time. They were to leave everything else and those grapes that were dropped for the poor. When they shook their olive trees, they were to do it once. After that, the poor got everything that remained. We're told in Deuteronomy 14:28 that every third year, the tithes from their produce were to be brought into the city and made available to the Levites and the poor. And we're told that every seventh year was the sabbatical year. And you're not to plow your land or work your land or harvest your vineyard, but on that seventh year, all that land was available to the poor and they could come in and get the produce off of it. And so when people were going hungry, it was everybody's responsibility. You see, Deuteronomy chapter 15 says that Israel would always have poor people 
But if they followed God's directives, they would never go hungry. But here in Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 2, we find a group of people who are hungry. They're going without food, and so they're crying out. Now, their situation is accentuated by their present circumstances. Some of these people may have been merchants who, because of the hostility presently felt by their neighbors, had their commercial ties cut off. Some of them may have lived in some of the outlying areas. And you remember back in chapter 4 and verse 22, Nehemiah had told them that they had to spend the night in the city of Jerusalem. So they were in Jerusalem 24 hours a day, working on the wall and watching for those who are working on the wall. And so they can't be back home doing any other kind of job and they can't be gathering food. And so their poverty is accentuated by the present circumstance. And if you'll notice in chapter 5 and verse 2, they give another circumstance here. They say, our sons and our daughters are many. Those with large families were being hit the hardest by this situation. And so overpopulation in the city of Jerusalem was adding to their distress. They were hungry. Second group came along. And they say, we are in debt, verse 3. And there were others who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Now, the first group had nothing. The second group had something, but they had to mortgage what they had in order to get food to exist. Now, why are they crying out against their brothers? Well, because their brothers were the ones who were taking their houses and their farms. You see, their rich brothers were coming and saying, I'm sorry about your problem. I'm sorry that you don't have food. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll loan you some money or I'll loan you some grain and you put your house down as collateral. And on top of that, when we slide down to verse 11, we find that they were charging interest to them when they loaned it. And the interest was a hundredth part, which is probably a hundredth part a month, which would be 12% per annum, which would be a lot of interest. And so they're saying, we'll give you grain... You put your house down, you put your vineyard down, you put your land down, and you pay us 12% a year in response. You say, what's wrong with that? Well, that's disobeying the law of God. Now, a lot of people get mistaken on this. There's nothing wrong with borrowing and lending. In fact, in Deuteronomy 23, 20, God says to Israel, you may charge interest to a foreigner. But the place where God draws the line on Lending with interest is when you lend with interest to a brother in need. Exodus 22:25 says, If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a money lender. Charge him no interest. And so you see, these people are crying out against their brothers because their brothers are breaking the law. And not only are they breaking the letter of the law, but they are breaking the spirit of the law. Because God had said in the law that you could loan someone something and you could take something of theirs as a pledge, but if what you took from them caused them a hardship, you were to give it back even if they hadn't paid back their debt yet. Example of that is Exodus twenty-two twenty-six. It says, if you take your brother's coat as collateral... Give it back to him before the sun sets because he's going to need it to keep him warm. You didn't hang on to it when he was suffering as a result. 
And also, even those Israelites who were not involved in loaning to the poor on interest were still responsible because Leviticus 25.25 says that if your countryman becomes so poor that he sells his property, his nearest relative who has the wherewithal should step in and buy back that property for him. And so there were other rich in Israel who, although they were not loaning at interest, they were responsible because they weren't responding as God has, had directed them in the law. And none of these principles are being absor- observed here, and so these people are crying out, we're in debt. And of course, their situation is being accentuated by what we read about in verse 3. There was a famine going on. And so this famine was hitting the poor people the hardest. Then there's a third group. And they cry out, we are destitute. Verse 4. Also there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now you know you're in trouble when you have to borrow money to pay your taxes. And that's what they were doing. And these taxes were taxes imposed by the king of Persia. These were not taxes that went back into the community to build better roads. These were taxes that went off to Susa to make a more beautiful palace there. And apparently these taxes were very exorbitant because these people were having to borrow against their land just to pay them. And to demonstrate how destitute they were, look at verse 5. And now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage. And we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. These people have already mortgaged the family farm and lost it. And now they are mortgaging the family. Now they are giving their sons and daughters away so that their sons and daughters will work as slaves until their debt is paid. Now, why are they crying out against their brothers because of this? Well, because their brothers are the ones who are enslaving their sons and their daughters. And once again, they're disobeying God's word. In Leviticus 25, 39, and 40, it says that if your countrymen become so poor that he has to sell himself to you, you're not to treat him as a slave, but you are to treat him as a hired worker. And Deuteronomy 24, 15 says you're to pay him wages. Even though he's working for you because he owes you already, you are to pay him wages. And God gets real specific there. He says you're not to pay him every month. You're to pay him every day before the sun sets because he needs the money to provide for his family. And then Deuteronomy 15, 12 says that after serving you for six years, on the seventh year, even if he still owes you a huge debt, you are to cancel his debt and set him free. And of course, Leviticus 25, 48 says, if you have a near kinsman who is in that situation, it is your responsibility, if you have the wherewithal, to step in and buy him out of that enslaved situation. But the sons and daughters of these people are being enslaved by their Jewish brothers, and apparently indefinitely, and so they are crying out. And so there's an outcry in Jerusalem, brother against brother. Those who are hungry and have nothing are being ignored. Those who are hungry and have something are being exploited by high interest rates. And those who have already 
given away and mortgaged away everything they have and are hit with high, high taxes are being abused because their sons and daughters are being taken by their fellow, fellow countrymen. And since Nehemiah is the governor, the newly appointed governor, all this is coming to him. You're the governor, do something. Now, if you were Nehemiah, what would you do? Most of us would probably rethink our commitment to rebuilding the wall. I mean, there's poverty, debt, famine, high taxes, read my lips. If there was ever a time not to build, it's now. People were saying, we're poor. We've got a famine we can't control. Taxes are going up. We're deep in debt. It would seem like the time to back away, but that's not what Nehemiah is doing. You see, Nehemiah understands that at a time like this, they need to rebuild the walls more than ever. At a time like this, they need to put the Lord first more than ever in their life. You know why they had experienced this famine? If you turn over to Haggai, we won't do it right now, but if you turn over to Haggai, and you find Haggai because it's between the two Z books in the Minor Prophet. If you turn to Haggai 1, 9 to 11, you find out that just a little earlier than this, God had brought a famine upon the people of Israel because they had come back to rebuild the temple. And rather than rebuild the temple, they had spent all their time building their own houses. And God had brought a famine on them because of their disobedience, because they were concerned about building their own house, but they would not build the house of the Lord. And so this famine came upon them because of their sin. You know why they were being taxed by the king of Persia? Because they had disobeyed God and God had allowed them to go into captivity to Babylon and eventually to Persia and now they were sending all their money to Persia because of their disobedience in the past. And you know why there were people in poverty and their needs were not being met and you know why there were rich people who were oppressing their brothers. It was because of disobedience to the word of God. So Nehemiah says, it's not time to forget the walls. It's time to rebuild the walls because that's the commitment we need. You know, a lot of us fall into the trap of thinking that way. We say, well, you know, after my ship comes in, and after I get my promotion, and after I get that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, then I'll build the walls of my spiritual life, and then I'll build the walls of my family life, and then we'll build the walls of the church life. But you see, that's backwards. You don't make your money and then get your family stable. You don't establish your career and then get your spiritual life straightened out, because by the time you get your money, your family will no longer be there to make stable. And by the time you establish your career, your life will be spent. And so Nehemiah doesn't say, let's stop moving ahead for God. He says it's time to move ahead for God because he needs to be the priority of our lives. Now before we move on, can you notice in verses 1 to 5 a parallel to the conditions in our day? Don't we see people going hungry, both physically and spiritually? Don't we see people in debt, both financially and spiritually? Couldn't we say that there is a spiritual famine in our country today? 
And can't we look around and see a whole generation of children in bondage? And you know what the saddest part of that is? Their parents have sold them there. Why? Because they want to further their economic goals. I am greatly concerned about the future of our country because it will soon be led by a group of people for whom few people have taken the time to raise. Our nation will soon be led by a group of people, a generation of people, who have been sold into slavery by their parents because their parents wanted not just food, their parents wanted the good life, the better things, more, more, more. And we sacrificed our children for that reason. That's why I would say to you what Nehemiah said in chapter 4 and verse 14. Fight for your family. Well, in the midst of this outcry, Nehemiah doesn't back away from his commitment to rebuild the walls, but interestingly enough, neither does he back away from the problem. Notice what he does in verse 6. Then I was very angry when I had heard their outcry and these words. This is the only place in this entire book where we're told that Nehemiah became angry. When he heard about the conditions of the walls in chapter 1, he didn't become angry. When he was mocked by Sanballat and Tobiah in chapter 2, he didn't become angry. When the enemies formed around him and got ready to attack, he didn't become angry. But now he's angry. Why? Because members of God's family are exploiting their brothers. And this is righteous anger. Just as Nehemiah expressed the heart of God in chapter 1 when he wept over the broken walls of Jerusalem, so here in chapter 5 he expresses the heart of God in his anger towards sin. And notice what he does, verse 7. And I consulted with myself. Good strategy. He's angry, but he doesn't rush right into the situation. He goes off in the corner and he cools off a little bit. He consults with himself. Literally, he counseled himself. He talked to himself for a little while so that he cooled down. And then he responded. Verse 7 says, And I contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You are exacting usury each from his brother. Now, when Nehemiah hears about this sin, he does what we're told to do in Matthew chapter 18. He goes to his brother. In this case, he goes to the nobles and the rulers because they are the ones with the money and they are the ones responsible for the oppression. And Nehemiah confronts them with their sin. You are charging usury. That's the word interest. You're charging interest to your poor brothers. You're taking advantage of them in their difficult situation. Now, the word contended indicates that there was a standoff in this meeting. Nehemiah confronted them with their sin. They came back with something like, this is our money, we'll do with it whatever we please. The king of Persia didn't send you down here to get into our business. And so they contended back and forth, and there was a standoff. And because there was a standoff, we read at the end of verse 7, therefore I held a great assembly against them. The private meeting didn't work. And so just as we're told in Matthew chapter 18, they take it public. They move it a step forward. And here, Nehemiah is going to use the positive power of peer pressure. Notice verse 8. And I said to them, We, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. 
Now, would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? That's hard to follow that precisely. He may be talking about the fact that God has bought them out of captivity in Persia and brought them back to the land. Where his argument would be, God has bought you out of slavery, and now that you're back here, you're going to do the very opposite. You're going to take your brother and you're going to sell him into slavery. Now, that would be in keeping with several arguments in the Old Testament law. After giving their guidelines on how to treat the poor brothers in Deuteronomy 24, 18, God says, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. When you remember where you came from, that you came out of slavery, then it makes sense for you to treat your brothers this way. We hear that same argument in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. When I understand my forgiveness, when I understand that I have been set free, then I can respond that way to my brother. That may be his argument here. Or his argument may be that many of us, according to our ability, Nehemiah and others have been taking their own personal money and buying individuals out of slavery who were sold into slavery to the nations. And he says, we're going out in the nations and buying these guys back, and you're turning around and selling them into slavery yourselves. So we're buying them from the nations, coming back here, and now we're going to have to buy them back from you. You're defeating the purpose. Whatever his argument is here, it worked, because if you notice the end of verse 8, it says, then they were silent and could not find a word to say. The nobles and the rulers were shamed into silence. But Nehemiah isn't satisfied with silence, and so he goes on. Verse 9. Again I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. See, this is not just a business issue. This is a spiritual issue. Nehemiah says, this is sin. This is not good. What you are doing is wrong. And then he gives them two ramifications of that sin in verse 9. He said, Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? Two ramifications. The first is vertical. Notice that in verse 9. Should you not walk in the fear of our God? What's the implication? They were not walking in the fear of God. By disobeying God's word and mistreating their brothers, they were breaking that vertical relationship with God. Their walk with him was not where it ought to be. And of course, that's true of us as well today. John said in 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, what? He's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If I am mistreating my brother... I am breaking my vertical relationship with God. It is destroyed. And then secondly, he talks about the ramification of sin in terms of the horizontal relationship. Notice the end of verse 9. Because of the reproach of the nations. You see, mistreating their brothers was destroying their testimony. They were a reproach to the nations. The Gentiles were looking on and saying, you talk a lot about God... But when it comes right down to it, it's obvious that your major concern is your own personal gain because you're grabbing that at the expense of your brother. And so you're no different than us. They were a reproach to the nations. 
And again, that holds true of us today because Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When those around me see me sacrifice the good of my brother for material gain, they say what? He's no different than us. He talks about being a Christian. He talks about his faith. But when it comes right down to it, all he cares about is himself. The testimony is destroyed. And so Nehemiah confronts them with their sin, charging interest to the poor, enslaving their brothers. He shows them the ramifications, broken fellowship with God and a broken testimony. And then he does what only a godly leader can do. In verse 10, he uses himself as an example. He says, And likewise, I, my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Nehemiah is leading by example. And Nehemiah says, those around me, we are lending them grain and we are lending them money, but we are not charging interest. And we are not using them in their difficult situation. And so he sets the example. And having done so, he then begins to correct the problem. And he does that by telling them to do four things. First of all, he tells them to determine to stop it. That's the end of verse 10. Please let us leave off this usury. Please stop charging interest. What are they to do? Determine to stop it. Now, sometimes people come to me and they say, well, you know, I'm convicted about a certain sin in my life. What do you think I ought to do? And I say, stop. It's real simple. God convicts you about something, you need to stop. You don't deal with sin gradually. You don't wean yourself off of it. You have to determine to stop. By the grace of God, I am going to put this thing behind me. That is Colossians chapter 3. That is Ephesians chapter 4. Putting off the old. I have to determine, first of all, that I'm going to stop it. Then secondly, he says, make restitution. Verse 11. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine, and the oil that you are extracting from them. The next step is to give it all back. As far as possible, they're to make it right. Now, when you're serious about dealing with sin, you will be willing to make restitution. You see, Nehemiah doesn't say, tell them you're sorry and go home. He tells them to give everything back, including the interest that you have extracted from them. That's the principle of restitution. Honey, I've neglected you for the past five years. So I want to spend the next five years making you forget you ever lost the last five. That's restitution. I did a sloppy job. I did sloppy work on that job, and I named the name of Christ. I'm going to come back and do it right. I'm going to do it until you're satisfied. You see, that's restitution. You don't say, I'm sorry, it'll never happen again. 
you fix the mess. That's what Zacchaeus did in Luke chapter 19. He came to the Lord and it says he gave away half his possessions to the poor and then anyone he had defrauded, he paid back four times as much. You say, well, if I do that, I'll have nothing. No. If you do that, you'll have the Lord's blessing. And if you have the Lord's blessing, you have everything. Now notice when Nehemiah says to do this in verse 11. This very day. Now, when God shows us a particular sin that we're guilty of, He doesn't tell us to take our time in dealing with it. God says, deal with it now. Do it today. You see, a long-range plan for dealing with sin never works because over time, the conviction wears off and we learn to tolerate the sin and we end up justifying our actions. And so sin has to be dealt with promptly and thoroughly if it's to be dealt with at all. Is there a sin you need to confess to the Lord? Do it today. Is there a brother or sister that you need to confess some action that you've committed against? Do it today. Is there restitution that you need to make for an action in the past? Do it today. Make restitution. Third step. Make yourself accountable. Notice verse 12. Then they said, We will give it back and will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. That sounds pretty good. Nehemiah has confronted them with their, with their sin. He's told them to stop. He's told them to make restitution. And they say, we will. But Nehemiah isn't satisfied. And so notice what he does at the end of verse 12. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. You see, Nehemiah isn't satisfied that they just tell him that they're going to do it. He brings the priests in because he wants them to tell God that they're going to do it. And he wants them to tell God in the presence of all these people because then they will be held accountable before the people that they're making this commitment in front of. A lot of times this is where our commitments fail. God convicts us about a certain area of sin in our lives. We feel guilty about it. We confess it to the Lord. We determine to stop it. Sometimes we even make restitution. But we don't share our commitment with anyone else, and so we don't have anyone else to hold us responsible and accountable for the commitment we have made to God. Last week we had the men's retreat, and Jeff Gorsuch stressed the importance of accountability among the men, that we would get together as men and have somebody we could come to who would speak to us straightly and say, how's your Christian walk? How are you doing with that sin that tends to plague you in your life? As someone who holds us accountable for our walk with God, it's very important. And that's what he's stressing here. That's why a baptism like we had today is so important. It's a public expression of commitment before others to hold me accountable that I will walk in newness of life. Accountability is the third step. And then there's a fourth step, and that is take it seriously. Look at verse 13. 
I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. If there's ever a time to take God seriously, it's when you make a promise to him. And whether you make that promise in private or whether you make that promise in public, that's a serious thing. And to illustrate that, Nehemiah takes his robe and he shakes it out. On the front of their robes, they had certain folds there that acted as pockets. And that's where they kept their personal belongings. And so when Nehemiah shook out his robe, his comb came out and his tic-tacs and everything you know, came falling out on the ground. And it was an illustration, and the message was, that's the way God's going to deal with you if you don't keep your promise. You see, he doesn't say God's going to separate you from him, but God is going to separate you from your possessions. If you will not use your possessions as you have promised to help the needy and to be used for the kingdom of God, then God's going to just shake you loose from your possessions and give them to someone who will. When we make a commitment to God, it's a serious thing. Now notice the result. And we'll close with this. And all the assembly said, Amen. Especially the poor, you know. <laughs> Amen. And they praised the Lord. And then the people did according to this promise. The strategy was effective because they kept their word. Well, let me just close by giving you three quick lessons for today. What do we learn from this passage? One thing we learn is that God cares about money. He's very interested in the way we earn it, save it, invest it, spend it, give it. He's interested in how we use our money. Don't fall into the trap of saying, this is the business realm and this is the spiritual realm. It's all spiritual. Because God is concerned about every decision that you make. God is concerned about money. Second lesson. Prolonged personal sins take a heavy toll on the work of God. Now if you look through the first 13 verses here of chapter 5, you will find no mention of building. Because the sins of the people have caused it to come to a halt temporarily. They're on a spiritual strike right now. That is the impact that prolonged personal sin has on my life. You see, the enemy from without couldn't stop the work, but the enemy within did stop the work. And when I allow sin in my life to go unchecked, it hinders the work that God wants to do on my life, in my family, in the church, in the community. Third lesson. The best way to correct a problem is head-on. You know, some of us are pros at avoiding the issue because it's painful to confront sin in my life. And it's real painful to confront sin in the life of my brother. But it's essential. It's necessary. And the only effective way to do it is head-on. Take that sin and bring it out to the light and then... After you've confessed it, determined to stop it, to make restitution, to make yourself accountable to others in your commitment to the Lord, 
and take it seriously.